Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast. Episode 23, Reversing the River. And we are talking to retired engineer and executive from MWRD. Yes. Dick Lanyon. Hi. And we wanted to talk to you about reversing the Chicago River. And we thought no better expert was available or even possible. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) We've met through the Windy City Historians with other authors. But recap your background for us, Dick. Background. Well, I'm a native Chicagoan, born out in uh, Woodlawn. I lived in Englewood for a while when I was a kid. Family moved north, grew up on the north side. Went to Lane Tech High School, on to the University of Illinois. At Navy Pier, when the, the undergraduate campus in Chicago was out on Navy Pier. That was, that was quite an experience. <laughs> I bet. Not a bad place to take classes, I would think. They were still using the south side of the pier as a municipal dock, and uh, so it was pretty noisy at times with trucks going by. And But anyway, I got a bachelor's and master's degree in civil engineering, specializing in water resources. And then I finished up down in Champaign-Urbana. Very good. After school, I worked for a consulting firm in Chicago for a couple of years called Harza Engineering Company. And after two years there, I switched over to what was then called the Sanitary District. Now it's the Water Reclamation District. They had hired Harza to be expert witnesses in the late diversion litigation. And I was assigned to work on that project. So uh, that got me familiar with the people at the Sanitary District. Looked like a good career move. And here I am. (laughs) There you go. It was a good career. Sounds like it. Dick, then you started a second career as a historian. You have written four books on the history of Chicago's waterways, drainage, and whatnot, and you started out with your great building the canal to save Chicago. Well, I didn't start out with the idea of writing four books. (laughs) Why don't you just briefly run through the titles of the other books? We started with building the canal to save Chicago. Yes, and that was published in the year 2012. So the next book came out in 2016, and that was called Draining Chicago, the early city and the north area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the city didn't have any sewers until 1850s. The third book came out in 2018, and that was called West by Southwest to Stickney, Draining the Central Area of Chicago and exorcising clout. Exorcising, not exercising. (laughs) And Dick, you have the greatest cover for that book. I don't know if you wanted to say what's on it. (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) I'm proud of that cover because that was in a box of glass plate negatives that was found recently. It wasn't part of the original archive that everybody knew about. And one of the fellows at the district sent me a scan of that. And he said, what is this guy doing standing on the dock? And I said, Justin, he's probably urinating. What else would he be doing? (laughs) Why would they do that? I said, well, everybody was doing that in 1904. Yeah. There was no Clean Water (laughs) Act yet. Yeah. So we we took that photograph and we blew up the guy standing on the dock. And... (laughs) It's not a pornographic, because uh, <laughs> it, it lacks detail. The gist. And then the last book, just published in September, and that's called Calumet First and Forever, Draining the South Area and a Territorial Expansion. 
So, Dick, for those listeners that don't necessarily know Chicago or don't remember our history that well, you've done these four books on drainage and uh, sewers. And why is that so important to Chicago in this area to give a greater context? Well, it's important because the land here was so poorly drained that it was very unhealthy. In fact, in the late 1800s, Chicago had the highest mortality of all the big cities in the world. Without proper drainage, you just can't have a good public health. And the importance of the canal system is that it provides an outlet for all of this water that was sitting on the land in Chicago. The canal system is kept below Lake Michigan, so we're not subject to the vagaries of Lake Michigan. And of course, right now, Lake Michigan is relatively high. And if we were discharging to the lake, believe me, we'd be sitting in water a lot in order for gravity to do its job. Right. Not only drainage, the canal system also provided navigation for commerce and to help the economy of the city. Of course, today, um, the river system and the canal system provides for recreation. A lot of people get out there in canoes and kayaks and motorboats and whatnot. Rereading your book, one of the immediate issues was also just the smell and the odor, particularly in the summertime, of sewage in the river and the canals, right? Yes. Well, as I said earlier, Chicago didn't have sewers, and they realized that they needed sewers to drain the land. Very important to do that because of the cholera that was causing a lot of illness and high mortality. Mm-hmm. Being kind of a marshy place, it must have been very unpleasant living here with water around a lot and then not being drained very well. And there was an engineer came over, was it Chesborough? Uh, Chesborough. He was from Boston, but he did go to Europe. After he came to the Chicago Even before Chesro was brought here in 1855, they knew they would have to start filling in the streets. And so, as you said, Pullman was in the business of raising some of the buildings. Of course, not all buildings were raised. Sometimes they just converted the first floor to the basement. That started in 1855, and Chesbro came, and he laid out a sewer system, and they started building sewers in 1856. Then the city fathers wanted to take a tour of Europe. That was kind of a popular thing that everybody was installing sewers to see what the big cities in Europe were doing with sewers. I mean, good plumbing is important. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We didn't have it. We we, we probably wouldn't want to live here. Fifteen years later, in 1871, all 30 square miles of the city were sewered. Wow. It was a remarkable achievement. Now, that was great for the land, but what happened, the sewers discharged into the river. So now the river became very polluted with sewage. And of course, the Chicago River didn't have much of a watershed, so didn't have a steady flow. During dry weather and hot summers, the river became very putrid and and unhealthy, obnoxious. Were all cities like this, Dick? where they drained into their drinking water because basically that's what was happening is the sewage was going into the water that Chicagoans drank. Other major cities like Boston or New York using this methodology? All big cities use the same methodology. Most big cities like New York, Boston, or St. Louis, you know, they're on a big river. And you could go upstream and take water in and If you discharge your waste, it would go downstream. In Chicago, upstream and downstream were the same. (laughs) Right, right. We had a problem here. But they used the same technology here, and that ultimately was to send the wastewater to a different downstream than the lake. But it took a while to do that. It wasn't until, you know, 1848 when the Illinois and Michigan Canal opened that first began to divert water from the Lake Michigan watershed to the Mississippi River watershed. Not a lot because the INM Canal was pretty small, but they were able to 
send some Chicago River water the other way. Were those the pumps at Bridgeport? Well, the, the Bridgeport pumps, yes, they came in a little later, around in the 1870s. What happened was that when they were building the canal, the INM canal in the 1830s and 40s, the state was running short of money. So they didn't dig the canal as deep as they had originally planned between Chicago and Joliet. And in the 1860s, Chicago offered to deepen that stretch of the INM canal and install pumps at the upper end, which was Bridgeport. And that was done to increase the capacity of the INM canal to discharge more water from the Chicago River. And ironically, one of the engineers on that was Roswell B. Mason, who became mayor of Chicago during the Great Chicago Fire, if I recall correctly. Yeah, a lot of names linked to waterworks and so forth. So that INM canal then connects with the West Fork of the South Branch around Damon Avenue or what used to be Roby Street. Actually, the INM canal connected to the South Branch right at Ashland Avenue, which was the confluence of the South Fork and the West Fork. Got it. All right. And then that took it all the way down, kind of paralleling the Des Plaines River from Summit down to the Illinois River, correct? Yes. And how many locks were in between? I can't recall. The INM Canal had 17 locks. Okay. Uh, between Chicago and Joliet, there were five. Got it. And the five were all at the Des Plaines River Valley between Lockport and Joliet. It was pretty flat between Chicago and Lockport. Right. Dick, you have some great maps in your book. Did you design those maps yourself? Yes. Yeah, they're hand-drawn, they're great. And I loved how you noted the Ogden-Wentworth Canal, which isn't that basically where Mud Lake was? Yes, it is. You know, the INM Canal was there, but the Mud Lake was still there. And two of our early mayors, Ogden and Wentworth, bought cheap land underwater and dug a ditch to drain the water away. And that was the Ogden-Wentworth Ditch. And it connected to the Des Plaines River on the west and to the West Fork on the east. Now, historically, the Des Plaines River would overflow. And because in the western suburbs, the Des Plaines River is higher than Lake Michigan, some of its flood water would flow through Mud Lake and to the West Fork and down through the city. That was expected to be an annual event, and it did occur. There were a couple of years when there was a big flood that caused a lot of damage. But you had this situation now when, when Ogden and Wentworth dug their ditch, that just made it easier for the Des Plaines River to flow back to Lake Michigan. So it was bringing more water into the Chicago River that people didn't want. Sort of like flushing a toilet then, and it all ended up out in Lake Michigan. Yeah. So eventually, of course, uh, that was eliminated when they built the sanitary and ship canal. Well, in your book, you talk about that famous storm of August 2nd, 1885. And I'm quoting from your book here. You say that a torrent, and I love the use of that word, a torrent of water flowed east, quote, along the Ogden-Wentworth Ditch to the West Fork at the South Branch. The flood wave went up to the branch and out the Chicago River main stem into Lake Michigan, causing extreme damage to both docks and bridges. Bridges with narrow and restrictive waterway openings were susceptible to damage. And according to your narrative, this basically forced the hand of the doubters who said, well, maybe we should fix this water issue because the drainage and water supply committee was formed soon after in 1886 to address this very issue. That's correct. I think I also mentioned the Citizens Association, which was the advocacy group of the day. Even before that flood, they were begging the city to do something because of this problem with cholera, you know, and this high mortality. Chesbro, in addition to building the sewers, Chesbro was the guy who came up with the innovative idea of putting this 
water tunnel under Lake Michigan and uh, building a crib two miles offshore so that you could get cleaner water away from the polluted shoreline. That went into effect in 1867. So that helped the water supply quite a bit, but you, you still had this terribly polluted river. And with a big flood, like in 1885, enough water would go into the lake that it would even threaten the two mile crib. So yes, they had to do something. As the elected officials will, they appointed a commission to make a study. They brought in another outsider, a fellow named Rudolph Herring from Philadelphia. He came in and led the study, and they came up with this plan to reverse the river. Now, Herring had three options. Explain that in the book. The least cost option was to reverse the flow of the river by building a bigger canal between Chicago and Joliet. His other two options were collect all the wastewater and discharge it to the south and take your clean water in up north. That works when the currents in the lake are going counterclockwise, but sometimes they go in the other direction. And so that wouldn't work all the time. His third alternative was to pipe all the wastewater south to the areas along the Kankakee River, which were very sandy. And of course, downstater didn't want Chicago's poop to be sent down there. <laughs> that idea wouldn't float either. No pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> Even building the, the bigger canal wasn't something that was favorable to the downstaters unless, unless the canal were navigable. So that was a requirement in the enabling legislation that if Chicago was going to build a canal, it had to be navigable to replace the obsolete I&M canal. And I mentioned in the book that the state passed this law. It was introduced in the 1887 session, but it didn't make it. But it was approved in the session of 1889. By the end of that year, the people in Chicago rolled up their sleeves and they passed a referendum and they determined the boundaries of the, the district. Now, why did we need the district? Well, the city came up with this plan, but the city didn't have money to build the canal, number one, and they didn't have the authorization because it had to go all the way to Joliet. You would be going into the next county. So that's why the General Assembly enabled the creation of a new form of government, a new form that would have larger scope of authority and taxing ability so you could raise more money because the city couldn't raise any more money. All right. I know the city was limited by the Illinois Constitution. I think the debt could only be something like, I want to say 10% of tax revenues, which was mostly property-based. And that got changed later. But yeah, cities were greatly limited. And the thinking was it should be pay to play would be the best way to finance all this stuff. So when you have a larger project like this, you got to come up with some other mechanism, right? That's right. And it was, it was tough going. After construction of the canal began in the 1890s, I had to go back to Springfield and authorization to increase the tax levy because the canal was funded entirely by the taxpayers in Chicago. There was no state money and there was no federal money. So this was a remarkable undertaking for a city to just go off and commit themselves to spend the money. But it was necessary to clean up this terrible public health problem. Right. Or we'd all be wearing boots probably to this day. Right. Right. <laughs> and Dick, in your book, you talk about how the politicians downstate did not like Chicago. I mean, this is like a theme because they don't like Chicago now. <laughs> and they really had a hard time passing some of this legislation and when they would go back and maybe add an amendment to it. And that seemed very frustrating. Yes. Well, they, you know, they had to make it uh, saleable and, and, and the district uh, would oftentimes meet the, the General Assembly halfway and do things that they might not have wanted to do, but they would do them just so they could get the legislation passed. We had someone like Stephen Douglas 
shepherding the sanitary and ship canal. I bet you Stephen Douglas could have got federal money for this. No, the federal government was not at all interested. They had no water resource program. The only money that they would spend is they, they would improve harbors for military purposes. I see. Uh, Fort Dearborn was built in Chicago and they built the Chicago Harbor so you could supply the fort, but there was no federal program. This work that the sanitary district did to build the canal was all done by state authority. They didn't have to have any permits from the federal government until 1899 was the first federal legislation that required permits for work in waterways. I mean, maybe this is jumping ahead. I noticed that Governor Tanner had to be consulted the opening in January 1900 when the water was be authorized by the governor, which I thought was kind of interesting. That was part of the original enabling legislation in 1889. Downstaters, you know, they didn't trust Chicago, so <laughs> they required the governor to uh, approve the canal going into operation. And not only that, but the governor had to be advised by a commission, a special commission consisting of downstate people. <laughs> that commission was formed in the year of 1898 when the district approached the governor and said, you know, we're getting near the end of construction here. We need to get your approval, but uh, you have to have this commission. So the governor said, oh, okay. He appointed three people, one from Joliet, one from LaSalle, and one from Peoria. And he said, but you know what? I don't have any money to pay these people. So the sanitary district put up the money to fund the commission. And the commission hired staff and they went out and they, they measured the canal and uh, checked all the work that the district was doing and finally said, yep, they're done everything that they were supposed to do. And they advised the governor and of course the governor approved, but that was, Another um, touch-and-go situation. What happened was in 1898, Chicago got word that St. Louis was not happy with what was going to be coming their way, <laughs> and uh, they were going to go to the federal court to stop the project. So the district prepared their defense. They hired experts to do water quality sampling along the rivers between Chicago and St. Louis to get some data before data, before the canal was built, with the idea that after it was built and in operation, they would continue to sample the Illinois River and other rivers. St. Louis went to court late in 1899, asking for an injunction to stop the project. Federal court said, how have you been harmed? And he said, well, we haven't been harmed yet, but we're going to be harmed. He said, well, of course, said, I can't stop something if it hasn't started. So <laughs> St. Louis was put off and the project went ahead, completed the construction and went into operation. Now, late in 1899, the sanitary district trustees, back in those days, they were called trustees. Today, they're called commissioners. But the trustees said, you know, we can fill this canal. We've got a 28-mile-long canal without any water in it. We can fill it. We just can't open the gates of Lockport. So they did that. On January 2nd, they broke through a levee down on the southwest side on Albany Avenue and let water into the empty canal. Well, in that photo, they must have known something was going to happen because everybody's wearing their Sunday best and their top hats and whatnot. You know, uh, this was a big deal. The sanitary district had been at this for almost eight years. This was supposed to be the, the panacea to save Chicago and couldn't wait to get started. And so, you know, they got to the point, well, we're going to breach this dike and let water into the 28-mile-long ditch. 
course, let's put on our Sunday best and get out there. Of course, it was the 2nd of January. It was a little chilly. The ground was frozen. <laughs> you know, they tried everything to break up the frozen clay, but eventually uh, Dredge was able to break enough open to let the water in. And it took 12 days to fill this empty canal. Dick, is there a plaque where that final breakthrough in the berm in, was it January 2nd, 1900? Yes. Where exactly is that on the map? And is there like a plaque or anything? It's on the alignment of Albany Avenue on the north bank of the Sanitarian Ship Canal. That would be, uh, you know, a couple blocks east of Kedzie Avenue. So here, uh, January 14th comes. What happened in those 12 days was the flow in the Chicago River turned around because they were filling this big ditch. And the Chicago River ran clear, sucking in water from Lake Michigan. It was like a miracle had occurred. And that's the way it was reported in the paper. But then on the 14th, the canal filled up and the flow stopped. The trustees started biting their nails. What's the governor going to do? Well, he finally said, okay, on the 17th. So January 17th is the day he approved and they lowered the gates at Lockport. And from that day on, the Chicago River was irrevocably reversed in flow. And just from a mathematical point of view, how many gallons would it take to fill a canal? I mean, trillions, right? Oh, sure, sure. We, we could calculate that out. It was 28 miles long. It was 160 feet wide, and it was about 30 feet deep. So you could do the calculations. Yeah. It was a constant flow of about 500 cubic feet per second for those 14 days, which would have been millions and millions of gallons. If it wasn't allowed to go into operation, then you can imagine this thing would be a 28-mile-long ice cube. <laughs> right. That wouldn't work very well. But of course, with all the sewage in the water, that kept it warm, you know? Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> You're right about that. Just as a side note, the South Branch, you had Bubbly Creek. And did any of this effort help with the flow in that area by the stockyards? You know, that's the thing. When you reverse the flow of the river, you change the gradient. Rather than the flow going from south to north, it now went from north to south. So Bubbly Creek got lowered. Mm. The point of Lake Michigan was the high point and water was flowing downhill towards Joliet. So the water level at Bubbly Creek or the South Fork near Ashland Avenue suddenly lowered. Sanitary district had to do a lot of dredging to make the, the rivers navigable after this time because of that lowering of the water level. But they did that to maintain navigation in the South Branch and the South Fork. I've also heard taking some river tours and that, you know, St. Louis and Chicago have always had a bit of a rivalry. Maybe goes back to something like this where we reversed the river and started to send our wastewater past their front doorstep. And uh, the joke was always been, well, St. Louis got back at us. They took that water and uh, sent it back to us in the form of Budweiser. <laughs> well, you know, the, the litigation between Missouri and Illinois and St. Louis and Chicago went on for a few years. Both sides hired experts. And as experts do, they'll cancel out their testimony. In 1906, the federal court found in favor of Chicago. Why did they do that? First of all, uh, several parties in St. Louis were in favor of this increased water. Anybody in St. Louis that had anything to do with the Mississippi River liked this additional flow because it didn't dry up in the summertime. And the tugboat owners, operators uh, in the St. Louis area said you could see the clean water from Illinois hugging the eastern bank of the Mississippi River 
past St. Louis. So it wasn't such a bad thing after all. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that before. Yes. And the other factor was St. Louis wanted to have the 1904 World's Fair. In order to do that, they had to get approval of Congress. They weren't so interested in making the Illinois delegation antagonistic for them. So um, they were soft peddling this issue. And, you know, the judge also asked St. Louis, what do you do with your sewage? And they said, well, we just put it in the Mississippi River. <laughs> so take that, New Orleans. He didn't see that St. Louis had a very good case. Anyway, I didn't get into that much detail in my first book because my thought at the time was I just wanted to explain how this canal was built and how it got into operation. So in my fourth book, I include a chapter on lake diversion, which starts with the litigation between Illinois and Missouri. And it brings us up to date with the litigation between the six uh, lake states and Illinois. Mm -hmm. So I tell that story in my fourth book. The discharge from Chicago back at the turn of the century was looked upon as a benefit. But that that was based on bacterial data. And within a decade, by 1910, the Illinois River was beginning to go to hell because of all of the solids in the sewage from Chicago was settling out on the bottom of the Illinois River. And it was, you know, adversely infecting the fisheries and the ecology of the Illinois River. Mm. That eventually improved after they began treating sewage. So, Dick, let me ask you, we have a continental divide in the Chicago region. That's why Summit is called Summit, right? Because Harlem Avenue is kind of where the continental divide is? Yes. Actually, yeah, go ahead. it's really a subcontinental divide. A continental divide, is, as I understand it, is where the waters go to different oceans. I see. Okay. In the case of our divide, it's a subcontinental divide because they both end up in the Atlantic Ocean albeit they get there by dramatically different routes. So from your book, I noticed that it took a lot of money to get through Summit. And Willow Springs, a town that I used to live near, you say in the book that it was a tremendous effort to get just from like Summit to Willow Springs on the way to Joliet. Why was that? Explain that. Well, All along the construction, there were various problems. When they set out to do the construction, the 28 miles, and by the way, I say 28 miles because that was the length of new canal that was built. But in order for that to work, you had to improve the five miles of the south branch of the Chicago River because of this additional flow. And you also had to improve five miles of the Des Plaines River through Joliet because of the additional flow that was gonna be brought into the system by this new canal. And when you say improve, you're talking about widening and dredging, right? Yes. Okay. So the 28 mile of new canal was divided up into three sections. There was the rock section, And that ran from Lockport to Willow Springs. And it was called the rock section because it was all rock, limestone. And between Willow Springs Road and Summit, about six miles in length, they weren't certain if there was any rock there, but they called it the earth and rock section just in case. Turns out that there was very little rock encountered in the construction. And then from Summit to the South Branch, actually Damon Avenue, that was another seven miles. And there there was no rock there. It was all clay. The part between Willow Springs and Chicago, whether it was earth or clay, there was a problem there with unsteady side slopes. You'd cut into it and it would slide into the bottom. So they had problems with unstable soils. Between Willow Springs and Lockport, it was all rock. They didn't have to worry about the side sloping. 
but it was very expensive to get the rock out of the ground. Well, how about that story in your book about the earthquake? It was October 31st, 1895, and 30-foot section of retaining wall was removed and had to be rebuilt as a contract extra. Now, you said this was in Section 7 on the south wall of the main channel, and it moved slightly towards the channel. And we think of Chicago, we don't think of earthquakes. <laughs> well, uh, no, we don't, but this happened. And then a year later, September 21st, 1896, there was earthquake damage on the SAG junction. And we forget that my father felt an earthquake several years ago. He told me he was in a chair. It was late at night, and the chair started to rock. And this was out actually near Willow Springs in Hinsdale. So we do have them. It's just, you know, we're not San Francisco, but we all know about the... New Madras faults down south. Yes. And I know that buildings are built to be earthquake-proof in downtown Chicago, skyscrapers mm -hmm. and whatnot. Right. The other thing that I liked about your book, because it really well distills all the back and forth and the politics, and and I've looked at those proceedings of, the sanitary districts, and they're just brutal to try to wade through and pick out. So I, I can't imagine slogging through all that, but it you've distilled that nicely to where it's fairly easy to understand what the heck was going on and all the machinations that had to happen. It also brought the whole idea that we take these canals for granted and you start digging a, a hole in the ground and, you know, you're going to get all kinds of things. Yeah, it happens and different challenges. And the other thing was the photos that you have from those plate glass negatives of all the different kinds of equipment that was tried or used in doing the various digging, depending on the materials you were trying to dig through. Right. Yeah, the, the rock was pretty straightforward, you know, drill and blast to break up the rock and cut the walls so you maintain the vertical face on the wall. A lot of manual labor to get the rock out of the bottom and mm -hmm. various devices to haul it sideways. Now, you had all this rock and they had no place to haul it away, so they just piled it next to the canal. And several photographs from the book show this huge pile of rock next to this canal. And that rock stayed there for decades. It's all gone today. It's been sold off. But back then couldn't afford to haul it anywhere and where would you haul it to so yeah that's what was done and in chicago the same thing occurred they would pile the clay next to the canal but in chicago they needed fill to build roads and raise the city and so forth so you uh, had a way to get rid of the spoil in chicago much quicker than the rock farther downstream well, I, I read some of the, the spoils from that dredging and that of the South Branch ended up in Grant Park. Yes, that's true. To help raise that you know, part of the lakefront. Right. Yeah, the last mile or two between Damon Avenue and uh, Kedzie was dredged because you had the river there and you could dredge it at less cost mm -hmm. than excavating in the dry in the last mile or so of canal. The other interesting thing is uh, all the bridges. There were seven railroad bridges and six highway bridges just in the Chicago part of the construction. Over the entire length, there were 31 bridges in total. About half of them were railroad bridges and the other half were road bridges. And of course, all the bridges had to be movable because of this requirement for navigation. Mm -hmm. However, the operating machinery wasn't installed in most bridges until navigation did occur. And in some cases, the bridges had enough clearance so boats could get underneath them without having the bridge to be opened. I think I saw an article when I was doing research for my bridge book. It was sometime in 1911 that the official, I guess, seaway where it could take large ships for its entire length was opened. Yes. The bridge part, of course, was part of my favorite reading of your book because it has a different slant than I took and 
a lot of interesting details there. Yeah, and you know, as I said earlier, the South Branch had to be widened. Most of that work didn't get accomplished by the turn of the century when the canal was ready to be put into operation. Most of that work was done in the first two decades of the 20th century. And I described that work in my third book. But that was quite a challenge because railroads owned most of the property along the river. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the district had to buy the land to widen the river, and the railroads wouldn't sell. So you ended up in court, and it took many, many years to convince the judge and the powers to be that the district needed this. Finally, the railroads caved in and allowed the property to be bought. Mm-hmm. Dick, just a point of physics here. At this time, how high was the river in relation to the lake? I should say the Chicago River, the canal, the lake. What, what elevations are we talking about? Well, you know, in Chicago, we don't refer to mean sea level. We refer to Chicago city datum. That's 640. That's in aviation, it's 640 because at Midway Airport, that's what you set your altimeter to. Oh, okay. Well, the Chicago city datum is about 580 feet above mean sea level. Okay. That sounds about right. That's been used for many years. And the Chicago city datum was set at the low level of Lake Michigan in 1847. So the lake varies between zero, you would say, and plus two or three feet. That's, that was the normal. Now, recently, it's been much higher, but it has a variation, a natural cyclical variation, depending upon the wet years and the dry years and the rate of evaporation and so forth. Mm-hmm. Once the canal was first put into operation, there was no block downtown. So water level was set by whatever the water level in Lake Michigan was. So if there was a strong north wind, the lake would rise up Mm -hmm. and there would be more flow coming into the Chicago River and flowing down towards Lockport. But they had to modulate the flow. They did that with the gates down at Lockport because there was a requirement in the state law that they had to discharge so much water per population and so as the population grew, they were discharging more and more water. So there was no control on the lake end until the 1930s when the Supreme Court limited the amount of flow that Chicago and Illinois could divert from the Great Lakes. And that's why they then built the Chicago River Lock in 1938. Were other states or Canada complaining about our flow? Oh, yes. Interesting. Uh, And they still complain. Because that whole Great Lakes system is tied together now. Yes. And so if you start to drain out of Lake Michigan, it comes from Superior and Huron and Ontario. And Lake Huron and Michigan are really the same lake. Yeah. Huron and Michigan are considered one lake because of the large up at the Straits of Mackinac. Which, interestingly, I understand that in the wintertime, if a large amount of the lake freezes, that actually means we might have a high water level in the spring or the summer because it stops the evaporation, which I didn't even think about. But a couple months of that can make a big difference, apparently. Yeah, that's that's one of the driving forces. And of course, the other is the amount of rainfall that we've had uh, or snow cover. We've had several years now with more than average rainfall, so we have high lake levels. Now, the controversy over lake diversion, the sanitary district offered to build regulating works over by Detroit so that if there was concern that the Chicago was lowering the lakes, they could compensate that by lock and dam on the Detroit River and the St. Clair River. But that was never pursued. The Great Lakes shipping was against it. You know, it would have defeated the interests of the lake states if Chicago did that, because they were always complaining about Chicago lowering the water level in the Great Lakes. But the water levels in the Great Lakes are complicated because not only are the natural variations, but 
Canada is discharging water into the Great Lakes from the Hudson Bay watershed for the purpose of hydropower. But that's compensating what Chicago takes out. But that's never been part of the litigation. That's always been uh, out of bounds. Can't talk about that. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, now you're getting into the realm of treaties and well, and no wonder we think the Canadians are so nice. You know, here's one more favor they're doing us, right? Right. <laughs> now, Dick, you were telling me, we were talking one time at one of our Windy City Historians meetings, and I think you said that like a thunderstorm of, let's say, two inches of rain, That's isn't that like four billion gallons of water? Well, it depends on over what area you're talking about. But yes, I think it... What is it? An inch of rain over Cook County is 10 billion gallons or something. Yeah, we were talking about the deep tunnel. That's why it came up, because I think I asked you how much water the deep tunnel can. Oh, yeah. Well, now, right. A deep tunnel, just the tunnels part, you could accommodate an inch of rain. Now, when you add in the reservoir, which we have partway now, McCook Reservoir is in operation, we can accommodate more rain. So we have seen a reduction in the amount of combined sewer overflows into the waterway system. It's a good thing, of course. It improves water quality in the river system and gives an outlet for storm sewers and combined sewers for the city of Chicago and the suburbs that have those sewers. So the deep tunnel is working. And uh, of course, the McCook Reservoir will be completed by uh, the year 2029. And is that just like filling a bathtub when that thing goes online? Yeah, well, first of all, the the rate of filling of the tunnel system is done by the district. You don't want to fill it too fast and cause some operational problems. And now with the reservoir partly online, the gates are left open so that the reservoir can fill and provide maximum capacity to swallow a storm. Depending upon uh, how much rainfall we get, if the reservoir doesn't fill completely, then, you know, there will be no overflows, and that's the way the system's supposed to work. However, since the reservoir is not completed, there is a limitation on the capacity, and we still have some overflows at the present time. Have the people at your former agency noticed more problems due to perhaps climate change or just freak storms in the last few years? Yeah, the frequency and intensity of storms, particularly the intensity, we seem to have um, more intense storms of short duration. So you get a lot more rainfall in a shorter period of time. This really puts the sewer systems for the city and all the suburbs under duress because designed to handle these very intense storms. One of the issues with the tunnel and reservoir system is antecedent rainfall. In other words, if you have a rainy period like we had last May, we had frequent rainfalls, so your reservoir fills up and you're not able to empty it quick enough before the next storm occurs. Okay, that happens, and you have limited capacity, and you can't prevent as as many overflows as you could if the reservoir were empty. Well, and I know that's why Friends of the River has their overflow action days. They notify folks to limit toilet flushes, water running while brushing your teeth, or shorter showers to help mitigate that, which actually does add up over the course of, you know, millions of people in the area. Oh, yes, yes. Actually, I mean... If it's going to rain, you should probably hold back, delay doing the laundry or taking a shower or whatever. Don't wait for somebody to tell you to do it because by that time it'll be too late. Yeah, take a bar of soap outside and then. Right. When you see the cloud in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Dick, I've read you are an avid bicyclist of the region. Is there a particular part of the canal that you can recommend 
and see this historic and important infrastructure? Well, sure. And as time goes by, we're seeing more trails along the waterways, and that's a good thing. I've biked uh, most of these trails, and most recently, a new flyover on the North Branch near Addison Street opened. The original canal construction, I point this out in one of the photographs in the book, they had to build a levee along the Des Plaines River to keep the river from flooding the construction area. And that levee is still in existence. Now it's called the Centennial Trail. And you can bike on it between Willow Springs and Romeoville. Mm. With the combined efforts of the various municipalities and the Forest Preserve District, they're trying to extend these trails. From Romeoville, you can ride a bike all the way down to Joliet along the INM Canal and other waterways. Now the latest Initiative is the Cal Seg Trail, which extends from near Lamont eastward all the way over to about Alsip. There are plans afoot to extend that trail farther to the east and connect up with bike trails over in the Lake Calumet area and on into the state of Indiana. So more and more, you can bike more miles along the waterways than you could a few years ago. That'd be great. Yeah. So, Dick, uh, on this podcast, Patrick and I have talked a lot about the Chicago flag and the stars that are represented on their Fort Dearborn, the Chicago Fire, Columbian Exposition, and the uh, Century of Progress. If city leaders had to design a new flag, would you add the reversal of the Chicago River as one of the stars? Well, that's a good idea. I'm on board. If you want to start a petition, I'll sign it. Something that should be considered. Yeah. Because <laughs> I agree with you. It's a monumental task. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, I mean, they, were, they weren't building this in a vacuum. I mean, during the Columbian Exposition, visitors to that fair went to look at the digging. You have a great photo in your book of one of the hoppers filled with tourists and on a cableway above the excavation of, of one of the main channels. And apparently this was quite popular with, you know, engineers from, from around the world coming to Chicago. Yes. Yes, it was. It still happens. People come to Chicago from all over the world to, to see what we've done here because not only the, the canal system, but the, the entire drainage system and the complex of sewage treatment plants and now deep tunnel and the reservoirs for combined sewer overflow. I mean, it's a world-class system we have here to handle water. And again, going back to the fact that the canal was not being dug in a vacuum, there were labor issues as well. I read in your book that there was a court case regarding, you know, how much were you going to pay the, the laborers? And I believe the court decided on 15 cents and an eight-hour day, and that was settled pretty late in the process. I think it was in the, the late 1890s. They decided that, and again, this is against the backdraft of Haymarket in 1886. You had the Pullman strike in 1894. So this stuff was bubbling up while the canals were being dug. Well, yes, and the, the district was very progressive and very favorable to labor. You know, they had the eight-hour workday overtime. The construction that happened in the 1890s was very remote. A lot of the laborers were immigrant laborers, and they lived right on the work site. The canal was built by several contractors, each holding a contract that was roughly one mile in length. So each contractor would have a camp and the camp would have dormitories for the laborers and food preparation, kitchens and so forth, and sanitary facilities. And you wouldn't believe you just lived right on the work site. Hmm. That was uh, very common. I like the hell on wheels towns of uh, a miniature version when they built the Transcontinental Railroad. Yes, we had a lot of problems along the construction route. As people are, they will get a little rowdy at times. What are you doing? 
And having immigrant labor, you know, one contractor would import Italian. He didn't do it. Another contractor would import Eastern Europeans and Polish and different ethnic groups. And so these groups would sometimes fight and get into barroom brawls and whatnot. The district has its own police force. They had to police the route. Also, they had to take care of the health of the workers. For those who, uh, whose lives were lost, they had uh, cemeteries set up, burial services provided. Hmm. That's very progressive. I know, like, if you were working in a coal mine and you died, you're not going to get a nickel for a burial. So, I mean, that's very progressive what the district did there. Yes. So I, I, this has been a great conversation. Dick, can you kind of just talk to the greater context of this canal and what it's meant for Chicago? The greater context. Well, I guess one could say, what if we didn't have this canal? And it's hard for me to visualize Chicago without the canal system that we have. We went through an exercise not too long ago with the Asian carp, an invasive species that migrated up the Mississippi River and got into the Illinois River. And there was a concern that the carp were going to make a touchdown run through the waterway system into the Great Lakes. You don't hear much about the Asian carp anymore. They're still there in the Illinois River, but they're not moving through Chicago to get to Lake Michigan. I think that's because the habitat just doesn't exist in the canal system. There's been a lot of initiatives to try to improve the habitat of the canal system, but it's really a difficult thing to do because you don't have a natural system here. You've got a totally artificial waterway system controlled by structures at each end and water doesn't flow unless some operator opens a gate or turns on a pump or whatever. That's not a natural system. So you can't force nature to convert something that's artificial into something that's natural. Well, in my understanding, I had had a conversation with Dr. David Salzman about the Asian carp several years ago. He also mentioned that the carp spawn in moving water and they need that. And so they could go out into Lake Michigan in theory, but they're not going to stay there because it's not their natural habitat to then spawn or reproduce. Right. One good thing about the Asian carp is that it spurned a lot of research. Right. We didn't know much about these species when we first encountered them, but now federal dollars that have been thrown at the issue, there's a lot more understanding about their behavior and reproduction and so forth. And several federal agencies got themselves together and had a coordinating committee and they would do monitoring and go out and try to find where the carp were. And it's the result of having a waterway system and connecting the two great watersheds. Some people advocate that we should go back and undo this connection, but that just won't work because you can't have a great metropolis like Chicago and its suburbs on the shoreline of Lake Michigan without some compensating work. You can't allow the wastewater from this huge population, even with wonderful treatment, you still have some contaminants and you don't want those to get into Lake Michigan. So the canal system really is there to protect the lake. That was its original purpose, and that's still its purpose today. Any thought of undoing this connection is, in my mind, not realistic. It's not a practical thing. Of course, people say, well, there's other big cities on the Great Lakes, and they discharge their wastewater. Yeah, that's true. But other big cities are not at the dead end of the second largest Great Lake like Chicago is. So with the combined population of Chicago and its suburbs and Northwest Indiana Mm -hmm. and Southeast Wisconsin, you got like 11 million people huddled around the south end of Lake Michigan 
without Chicago, and the outflow is 300 miles north in the Straits of Mackinac. And of course, the Straits of Mackinac, depending upon the weather and the wind and whatnot, sometimes the flow is from Michigan into Huron, sometimes it's from Huron into Michigan. Yeah. So if we're not careful, we could allow contaminants to build up in the south end of Lake Michigan. That's why I believe that the canal system is there not only to drain the city, but also to protect Lake Michigan. That makes perfect sense. Well, Dick, we really appreciate you writing these books. I mean, they're an important addition to Chicago history. We're glad to try to capture some of that here on the Windy City Historians and glad you could come and do an interview. Well, thank you. It's been fun chatting with you fellows. We hope to see you in person soon. All right. Great. Thank you, Patrick. Take care. Thank you, Dick. Bye. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hoggenson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.